Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. I have my friend and compatriot, John Nugent, with me again, and we are going to take another question from our listeners. This question is from the Old Testament, but it bleeds into the New And I think it's interesting, and I've heard it before, at least used in the way that uh, this particular person, it's a woman who asked the question, framed it. So here it is. I have been reading 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Recently, I've noticed that many people have taken this verse as a rallying cry for their country. Mm -hmm. And my question is whether or not this is a proper interpretation, application of this scripture. Can we apply it to our nation today? What do you say about this? Great question, and great to be back on the podcast with you. You know, my gut reaction is to point out how different our situation is today from this passage and to talk about why we shouldn't. But there's also a part of me that wants to say, but let's not throw it out altogether as being irrelevant. So I think I'll begin with my gut reaction. (laughs) There is an event for this passage. Solomon uh, had dedicated the temple to the Lord, and the Lord is responding to Solomon's desire for God to be responsive to his people and to hear the prayers that they're going to utter to him from this place. Uh, And God's response is, you know, if you're truly contrite, (laughs) if you really want to align your ways with God's ways and be faithful to Torah, and if, if you call out to me when you are receiving my discipline, then I will, I will indeed listen to your prayers. I will indeed take seriously your petitions and I will indeed answer the cry that's on behalf of your land. And so this this is a specific prayer prayed by an Israelite king about an Israelite temple to a God who is already committed to a special relationship with this people. He's already promised to David that there will be an eternal kingdom uh, from his lineage. Uh, so that's the context for this prayer. Um, so we have to be careful not to universalize it. It doesn't say when any people pray right. in the direction and you know of the temple in Jerusalem or to the heavenly temple in the sky, right? <laughs> that God promises to heal their land. It, it's not a universal promise. Uh, scripture makes very clear that in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that God has a special relationship with the people of Israel, that they are his people, he is their God, he will bless those who bless them, he will curse those who curse them. This is, Solomon is simply invoking that special relationship, right? And so for us to say that, therefore, any nation 
that calls out to God will be healed if they cry out to God, uh, whatever might be afflicting their land, is to presume that every nation has a special relationship with God the way Abraham's descendants did and the way Solomon's kingdom did. Uh, and that's that's quite presumptuous. Having said that, I mean, the invitation of the gospel is for all people to repent of their sins right. right, and to turn to the same God who was speaking to Solomon and the promise that God will bring healing to them, that God will restore them, that God will extend his salvation to them. Mm-hmm. And forgive them as well. Exactly. Forgive them their sins. So it's not like God only hears the prayers of uh, repentant Jews, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or even repentant Christians. I mean, how we have all become Christians to enter into a special relationship with God is because of our prior cry out to God when we were yet still lost in our sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe God does listen to the prayers of not his people, that he responds to the prayers of not his people. Um, the most classic example of that in the scriptures is the book of Jonah, where uh, the Ninevites you know, take drastic measures uh, to avert the promised catastrophe um, upon their city uh, that Jonah brought, that message to them. And beyond Jonah, there's not a whole lot of that kind of thing going on right, throughout the Bible. But we do have God so loved the whole world that he sent Jesus, and God invites that whole world to repent. But to equate any nation as having the kind of relationship with God that Israel had in the time of Solomon, to me, is a huge mistake in salvation history. What time is it in salvation uh, history? It's the time when God's people are no longer associated with one particular nation. God's people are a transnational entity scattered as aliens and exiles, ambassadors for God's kingdom in every nation of the world. And so every nation is missionary soil, even the land where Solomon used to reign as king, uh, is missionary soil where there are uh, churches who bear witness to God's kingdom, and they're, but they are under the, the rulership of the powers and principalities of this world, mm-hmm. uh, who are not God's special set-apart messiahs, <laughs> like David was, like Solomon was, and like Jesus ultimately uh, became for us. It's interesting because he's talking about his people— all right, now this is Old Testament Israel, not contemporary Israel, folks. Old Testament Israel, again, the context, Solomon, the nation under him at the time. If they turn from their wicked ways, now this implies that Israel, or there was a portion of Israel that was sinning, that was not only sinning, but committing wickedness. Else, why would he say, turn from your wicked ways? So it implies that there was sin in the camp. And then. He promises forgiveness, and then he promises to heal their land. Now, one of the things I find interesting is that there is a mindset, John, in the United States of America, among many Americans, and I don't know how prevalent this mindset is with other countries in the West, but in America, there is this viewpoint that says we are a special nation. We were founded unlike any other country. The people who came over here to start this country came for the reason to acquire freedom to practice their faith. They were Christian people. The founders were Christian people. You know, we have in God we trust and our coinage and on and on and on. And for this reason, God has blessed us 
in prosperity and we are one of the most wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, the most powerful countries in the world. And so, and the mind of people who have this viewpoint, we are like Old Testament Israel. Americans, America is a Christian nation, or at least it was. And so with that mindset, they will say things like, well, because we have strayed as a country, because our laws are now allowing for and even promoting degeneracy, okay, quote unquote, the wicked ways to use the language out of Second Chronicles 714, that this passage does apply. So what do you say about that mindset? And what do you say about that application, particularly as it concerns the United States of America? Yeah, there are historical question marks all over those assertions. Mm. Yes. To what extent was uh, America founded in a way that was pleasing to God? But setting those aside, I mean, you know, when we say in God we trust, are we talking about the God of Israel, right? Um, when we put Ten Commandments in our courtrooms, are we saying that you know we want to honor the the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this in this mm-hmm. place? Do the words on our money and the words on our our placards uh, as a country line up with how judgments are actually made in the courts, mm-hmm. how laws are actually executed, et cetera, et cetera? Because words without substance all throughout the Bible tend to have the opposite effect of what we want them to have. <laughs> Yes. Um, God's judgment is upon the hypocrisy of people who say things that they don't really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, we have to be careful in citing those words because they would more likely serve to condemn America for not instituting laws that take seriously Jesus Christ uh, than as um, a reason to incur special divine favor. That being said, I mean, the direction of salvation history, we just have to keep our eye on on the prize. We have to keep our eye on the arc of salvation history, the shape of the Bible story, where it came from, and where it's going. We talked about this in the last episode we recorded together, that there was a time when God had a set-apart people um, that he placed in their own land so that he might form them, according to Torah, to be a people whose life together is a demonstration plot of what God's reign in this world could look like. God's desire for that set-apart people, Israel, was that eventually they would be a light to all nations, and that all nations would come to see um, the way of life that Israel lives according to Torah. They would be drawn to God, the giver of those laws, because his righteousness is visible by the way his people live, and that they too would come to confess uh, his kingship over them in this world. Right? That's, that's how the Old Testament frames the function of Israel in the world. Of course, that doesn't go very well. And the people reject Torah. They abandon the covenant God makes with them. They live just like the nations. They have a king just like the nations. And God's like, well, if you're not going to live the way I've called you to live, if you're not going to be a demonstration plot of God's reign and his righteousness and his justice, then I can't use you as my role model for the other nations. So God disciplines them. He strips them of the kingship. He strips them of the uh, functioning temple, and he humbles them before the nations. And the people are about to give up on themselves, on their whole national project, when the prophets say, not so fast. God's not done with you. He's disciplining you. He continues to discipline you. Come before him. Repent before him. He will send you his Messiah, who will gather you, restore you, and then fit you for his global mission. By faith, we confess that that Messiah is Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and 
gathered scattered Israel, restored them to a greater understanding of God's kingdom purposes, empowered them by the Holy Spirit, and then sent them into all nations as a trans-territorial reality, as aliens and exiles in every land, to carry out that function. What Jesus did not do is reestablish Palestine as the nation-state of Israel, put a governing system in place that lives by the Sermon on the Mount, and use them as a city on a hill that everyone is going to stream to. That's what everyone thought was going to happen. That's what the apostles, even after the resurrection, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were asking, God, when are you going to make one nation state your special people? And Jesus says, basically, that's not how this is going to happen. The land of Israel becomes the launching point for global mission. And in that launching point, it's very fascinating that Jesus, whose ministry stayed away from Jerusalem all the time, right? It was mostly around Galilee and around the countries, among the common folk. But after he or ascends into heaven, he says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit so that the prophecy might be fulfilled, that the word of the Lord might go forth from Jerusalem. That is such a critical passage. I wish I had the verse reference on the tip of my tongue, but I don't. Because you would think that he would say, go back to where I met you in the beginning. Go back to Galilee, where our ministry focused. Instead, he says, no, hang out in Jerusalem. That's where the Holy Spirit is going to be poured on you. Because God made a promise in the Old Testament that Jerusalem was special, and it's going to have a special place in God's global mission. And the special place is that's where the Spirit is poured on them, and that's the place from which the mission goes forth from Jerusalem to the rest of the earth. And in that prophecy being fulfilled— on the day of Pentecost, God has fulfilled the purpose of that set-apart land in his mission. So if any nation has the right to claim we are set-apart and special in God's eyes, it would be Israel. If any city, it would be Jerusalem. And God fulfills that promise by making it a launching pad for global mission. It's the ladder that they had to climb to begin the mission, but after the mission begins, you kick out the ladder from underneath you. And now you've gone global. And so no territory from that point on can claim to be God's special anointed territory such that the governing system there or the people who congregate there and live there are uniquely God's chosen people. I would say to call any nation state of this world God's chosen people is heresy. I would have to agree with you. God's chosen people, that's Old Testament Israel, not contemporary Israel, folks. And that would be the ecclesia of God, the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's the mission that went forth from Jerusalem. It began with the Jewish people, it incorporated the Gentiles, and it is a transnational, trans-ethnic kingdom that's unlike any the world has ever seen. And it's that trans-territorial scope that is a foretaste of the kingdom when it comes in fullness. Yeah. When the kingdom comes in fullness, America is not going to be special. Israel is not going to be special. Europe is not going to be special. Rome is not going to be special. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why different people want to make their country or their nation or their city more special. There's a reason why in Revelation, the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven. Yeah. It's not built up from the stones and the rubble of Jerusalem or Rome or Washington, D.C. It's a God thing that he establishes on the earth and for the whole earth that there might be a whole earth under his kingdom, under his lordship, each one's equally giving him praise and ordering their lives according to his purposes for all creation. I have spoken extensively, and and I believe you have as well, but 
in Insurgents and in other parts of his podcast, but loyalty to your country, very often love of your country, very often collides with loyalty to Jesus Christ. And I think it's it's almost in the drinking water in America, at least in certain segments of the Christian populace. Older folks, I have found this to be true. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to be that many younger folks don't appreciate how God has, in fact, blessed America, just as he's blessed other nations. But saying that God has blessed a country, and in some ways he's blessed it, in other ways, you know, <laughs> that's not the case, because there are people in this country who are suffering and have suffered for many years. But without question, he had a, in the Old Testament, there was that special, unique, exclusive covenant with Israel for the very reasons you talked about. I do think there are question marks around certain renderings of history when it comes to how America was founded. And I don't want to get off in the rabbit trail on that and go into the rabbit hole. But there were things that happened <laughs> to the Native Americans who were here first, right? Anybody can pick up a history book and read about that. You can read about slavery. You can read about other things that happened that did not reflect what we see in the New Testament. On the other hand, there were there were wonderful things that happened, and God used different people throughout American history, and it has brought the blessing of God in various ways. But like you, I don't believe that America is certainly not the new Israel, folks. We do not have some kind of special pipeline to God. In fact, I would say that in our time right now, America has been caught up with and has been sort of a breeding ground of degeneracy and even exported to other parts of the world. It's part of the world system. I mean, this is the nation state. It's part of the world system that we are to come out of. One can appreciate their country and one can pray for its leaders as we're called to do, but that's very different from pledging your allegiance to the country as if it's some kind of a divine thing. Yeah. And I think the parallel between country and family, I think is really strong. For all of us, we have a special affinity for our families, our biological kin, our ancestors in the bloodline. Mm -hmm. um, they're special to us. We couldn't be who we are without them. We wouldn't be who we are without them. They're the conditions in which we came to be and survive. So we love our families. You know, we care for our families. We want to perpetuate our families. And so it is a very natural thing to extend that to our country. And um, I think Christians in every country have a certain kind of appreciation and gratefulness to their country. To me, where the danger is, is precisely in what we talked about in the last podcast episode. There are certain things that the prophets hold the nations accountable to. I've done a study, and we've kind of uploaded that to the show notes, of every single time a prophet or a passage refers to God's judgment on a nation for a particular reason. And I've listed all the passages, I've listed all the reasons, and I've organized them. And the number one reason God brings judgment on another nation on a nation other than his people Israel, is because of their pride in their accomplishments, their wealth, and their uniqueness. Mm. Now think about that. <laughs> the number one reason God brings judgment on nations is because of their pride in their accomplishments, wealth, and uniqueness. And now you have Christians who call the Bible Scripture, who say the reason why America is God's special chosen people is because of their accomplishments, their wealth, and their uniqueness. How dripping with irony. So if, if we truly love our nation, 
um, we're not going to say things that encourage pride in our nation's accomplishments, wealth, and uniqueness. That's the kind of thing that brings about God's judgment. If you want to compare America's accomplishments, wealth, and uniqueness to the nations in Scripture, you're going to find America lining up more with Rome and Babylon Mm -hmm. than you are with Israel in its Torah form, God's design for Israel to be a lowly nation who weren't impressive in their military, who relied upon God alone for her wealth. And you look at what God has honored in his set-apart people. It's their humility. He prides himself on their lowliness. Jesus picks apostles who are not impressive people to represent him and to be the cornerstone of his kingdom people. So to use, again, the attributes of America that seem impressive— as kind of evidence that they are uniquely chosen as God's people is to pick worldly criteria of greatness and attribute that to God's discerning what nations are great in his eyes today over against the overwhelming consistent tide of scripture that what is great in the eyes of the world is not to God and what the world despises is greatness in God's eyes and in his kingdom. I got to tell you, those are excellent insights, John. And I think just those statements alone are worth the price of this podcast. That's a joke, folks, because this podcast is free, but (laughs) great value in that. So coming back to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. All right. Again, this has been brought up by many, many, many Christians as a prerequisite for revival. And I would put it this way. It seems to me that specifically, specifically, this does not apply to other nations because in the context he was talking to his set-apart people, Israel. Okay, So when he's talking about my people, that's who he's talking to. Now, in a general way, what if Let's just remove my people, because people in the United States of America are not his people, okay? He has his people in the country, but not every American is part of the family of God. Let's just say that all of them, right? Let's say all of them humbled themselves, prayed, sought his face, turned from their wicked ways, which would imply, okay, and what I'm throwing in here is that they turned to Jesus Christ. They repented and believed the gospel of the kingdom, okay? Um, Would God forgive their sin? Absolutely. Not based on this verse alone, but based on the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Forgiveness of sins is a part of it. Would he heal their land? I definitely think if all Americans, or, you know, pick your country, folks, turn to Jesus Christ, receive the gospel of the kingdom, I think is a necessary or an automatic byproduct of that, the land would be healed, right? The country would be blessed. The country would flourish. I mean, that's just what happens when you turn from sin. Sin is the great decimator, the great destroyer, the great defiler. Now, having said that, what if his people, just his people, all of the followers of Jesus in the United States got on our faces, repented from whatever sin was in our life, would the Lord heal the United States of America? Would he send a revival? Well, my answer to that, John, is very possibly, but not necessarily. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Would he send a revival? I mean, if all Christians did that, it would be a revival. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think, yeah, again, God so loved the whole world that he sent Jesus. God so loved the whole world that he set apart Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all nations. Uh, when God's people take seriously their intercessory role to be God's missionary mediators on behalf of the nations, uh, I think uh, that would be a powerful expression of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I doubt, as Christians, that we would only pray for America, right? Well, we right. would pray for the earth because our nearest kin are not our American neighbors. Our nearest kin are Christians in other nations That's who right. are also suffering from the you know, COVID-19. Uh, so I believe that, you know, if American Christians got on their knees and prayed for the world fervently on the same page, which would be an act of revival, certainly I believe God would hear. And yes. if it was in line with his will to reverse some of the uh, momentum that this plague has kind of had throughout the earth, if it was if it was consistent with the purposes that he has for this world, uh, when his people ask for a loaf of bread, He's going to give it to him. If he's doing something through this plague that will not be accomplished if he interrupts it, uh, if he's doing something that is precisely for the world's uh, benefit, then like Jesus who prayed, Lord, you know, take this cup from me. Sure, he wants to answer Jesus's prayer and not make him go to the cross, right? He loves his son. Um, but him going to the cross was the best thing for the world and for world history on a macro level. And so God's answer is, I hear your fervent prayer. I appreciate your fervent prayer, but you're going to drink this cup, and it's it's for the good of the world. Uh, and so uh, we don't want God to, because we all get on the same page and want the same thing and pray for the same thing, we don't want him to just be overwhelmed by our unity and act no matter what. We always want him to act in the best interest of world history and salvation history. Uh, and I do believe God will act above and beyond um, what he may act if we weren't praying. That's, this is why we pray. This is why we fast. We want God to do something more than he was already going to do. But we would only expect him to do that something more if it wouldn't be counterproductive for our own well-being and the well-being of the whole world. I guess I would summarize by saying that Second Chronicles 7.14, in its specific meaning does not have application to all nations. And I would include the United States <laughs> because we are not Old Testament Israel, nor what Old Testament Israel exemplified. But I would say that in a general sense, in a general way, that what is stated here is in fact something that we can practice and we can hope that the Lord would honor it in that he would accomplish his purpose of blessing and bringing others into his kingdom and thereby healing the earth. Yeah, and it's not just this passage. In Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2, in Nehemiah, we have these summons of a sacred assembly uh, on behalf of the healing of the land. And again, it's Israel in particular. <laughs> it's not you know all nations everywhere. But there's something about God's people seeking him repenting of their sins, calling upon him to act in human history, that God, as a loving father who loves the world more than we do, will be responsive to our prayers. And so neither of these verses is a promise. Whenever we do this, this will happen. But it is precedent 
that God's people have done this in world history, and God has responded. The Ninevites have done this, and God has responded. The invitation remains, will you do this again? Yeah, and as kingdom people, uh, I think one of the instincts that we have is not only to be concerned just with ourselves, but also be concerned with the world and the suffering of the world. And by the way, the suffering of the world didn't just happen with the coronavirus. The suffering of the world has been going on (laughs) for millennia. And it just seems to me, and I wrote about this in an article recently on my blog about the virus, but it seems to me that unless a disaster or a plague or a catastrophe comes right to our doorstep, it's almost like it didn't happen. And I'm mainly speaking about Americans, you know. Oh, those poor people there in Tennessee who got hit by that tornado. But that's one thing. It's another thing when it comes to us, it's the end of the world now. You know, the unfortunate thing is that right now, at least for most of us, the extent of our suffering is we just can't leave the house. Cabin fever is pretty tame compared to the other things that are plaguing people around the world. Yeah. (laughs) My point is that, you know, the prayer for the suffering of the world, the tapping into the intercession of the Holy Spirit for for those who are in pain, our brothers and sisters mainly, right, who who are in other parts of the world, who are in our own country, who are in our own city, who are struggling financially, who are struggling in their relationships because of the pressure, who are struggling physically. And to me, that would be at the forefront of our praying, John, is to pray for one another, meaning our fellow citizens in the kingdom of God, and also how God would use this calamity to, to advance his kingdom. Yeah, and you know that's, that's our primary concern. That's what we seek first, is his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. So mm-hmm. we're prioritizing one another with our love. And in addition, we will pray for the governing authorities. You yes. know, because in their in their work is the well-being of wider societies, including our well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the letters of Paul remind us um, that we don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, we exist in nations, and there are leaders who make decisions that impact the well-being. You know, they they institute quarantines that is supposed to be helping everyone um, and creating a a kind of or at least stop a uh, overflow of hospitals. And so, yeah, we will pray for the nations and we will pray for their leaders. Uh, we care about the well-being of our neighbors, and we know that our well-being is tied to theirs in many concrete ways. You know, it's a prayer for the world that is not independent for the prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The whole issue of prayer, and maybe in the future I'll I'll do a, a separate podcast on this, but and now in certain parts of the Christian world, there is an idea that says praying, interceding, is in fact a denial of God's goodness. So in other words, when you're praying and you're begging God to do something, and that's how they define prayer, you're begging God, you're saying, God, you're not good, so I have to kind of twist your arm by asking and begging and pleading for you to do something that's good. And so they're bringing this natural logic, the logic of the natural man, to the issue of prayer, and uh, again, getting out the whiteout and (laughs) whiting out every portion of the Scripture, the New Testament, that exhorts us to pray. 
because you have to do that to hold this idea. Oh, yeah. If God is really good, why why isn't he willing to do it in the first place? Why do you have to ask him? And, and my answer to that, John, and this is my short answer to it. I mean, this could be expanded into a whole subject, but it really has to do with how God operates. He's not someone who just acts on his own. He has brought us into his activities in the world. And I would define prayer as being God's power sharing mechanism. Mm-hmm. That the Lord, the way that the universe is set up, the way it's designed, the way he has created it post-fall, if you believe in the fall, or post-Adam's blunder, if you believe that Adam had a blunder, certainly something went wrong in the creation project. Post that, that event, God has enlisted the help of human beings to do what Adam failed to do, and that is govern the world. And so consequently, God is is the ruler of the heavens. Humans are to rule the earth. We find this in Genesis 1. And so when we have Jesus, who is God and man, coming into the planet, and he is now ruling heaven and earth, you have what's now the kingdom of heaven come to earth in him. And that is what we call the kingdom of God. And A big part of the kingdom of God is that we as human beings co-labor with God himself. And that's why Jesus was praying. It was the divine power-sharing mechanism where God's power is being unleashed through a human being. Yeah, I think that's a big part of how God's plan works out in this world. And I think there's another factor that combines with that, and that is God wants to create a world where faith is possible. And for faith to be possible, for people to choose to believe in God's providence, in his work in in world history, to his offer of the kingdom, there has to be the possibility of not choosing. If God answered every prayer, if, you know, whenever anyone spoke in the direction of the sky or Jerusalem or wherever people think, you know, you should pray, if every time they uttered such a prayer, God answered it, there would be no faith. There would just be sight. Mm. Everyone would know. The evidence would be irrefutable. Anytime you ask something using the right words or in the right direction, here is the predictable response. Therefore, there must be a cause that can account for such a response. Therefore, God exists. Therefore, (laughs) there is no faith. There's just sight. We believe because we see. And God's kingdom is for those who believe without seeing. You know, you can look at the day of Pentecost, and you can see the Joel prophecy being fulfilled, and people speaking in other languages, sons and daughters prophesying, and you know a sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Or you can see a bunch of drunk men. Yeah, that's right. You no, know, and and God wants there to be faith, and if if He treated prayer as an automatic, every time you ask, it happens. There would be no faith. Mm-hmm. Yet, if He always did the right thing so that we never have to ask, then the creation would be in autopilot mode. It would be the clockwork of the deists, right, who believe that God set things into motion according to his perfect design, and world history is the the natural folding out of what originally happened. God never intervenes, right, Mm -hmm. to do anything. Rather, everything that happened was the fulfillment of the snowball that he rolled down the hill. And I think God wants to be interactive with his creation. 
So prayer, he creates space for actions that he would do if he were asked, but that he won't necessarily do if we don't ask. And that's how we can have a participatory role in his mission. Absolutely. We we share in his activity and his power and his ability. And prayer is that specific. Prayer mixed with faith, of course, is that specific mechanism, if we can call it that. This whole idea, and I plan to write about it at some point on my blog, but it really has taken us way, way off course. I mean, you cannot coherently understand the New Testament without recognizing that from Jesus on, prayer was a vital part of their life. And this idea that says it's a denial of God's goodness just betrays a lack of understanding of how God operates and how the world operates, his world, and how he has called his people to join him, right, and unleashing his will into the earth. On that point, and I think maybe we'll end here, I want to say that for me personally, one of my prayers has been, John, not only for my family, my loved ones, my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we're going through this particular crisis, but I am asking that the Lord would enlighten and reveal a cure, a treatment, an effective treatment to one of his servants, okay? One of our brothers or sisters, <laughs> because I would like him to get the glory. And you know as well as I do, if a true follower of Jesus Christ has a breakthrough, they'll know it's from God and they will give the Lord the glory. So that's one of my prayers. Yeah. Yeah. I could join you in that. Well, I appreciate that. So that's two of us. How about you all listening? Would you agree with us in prayer that God would do that uh, and use one of his people to do it? Well, I think that about ends it. We will see you next time in the next episode of the Insurgents Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.